We're going to be in Psalm 19. Uh, if you don't know, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, if you just kind of open it about halfway, you'll probably land in Psalms, unless you have an absurd amount of maps in the back of your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on that back wall right back there. Uh, feel free to grab one and take it home with you, um, because it's, it's important that we all have Bibles. So let's go ahead and start reading it, and then we'll go through. Uh, verse 1, Psalm chapter 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. The voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and the utterances to the end of the world. And in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It is rising from one end of the heavens, uh, and its circuit is to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from the heat. Uh, Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing at the heart. Uh, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Also, keep, me back, uh, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I will be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So I want to start by saying uh, the real question that I have when I read this, when I, when I think about what, uh, this is David speaking, by the way, uh, is a psalm written by him. The real question that I think is, is how do people that love God deal with their sin? How do people that really genuinely love God, want to live for him, want to, want to live lives as, as uh, being like Christ, how do they deal with their sin? And that question kind of presumes a couple things, or assumes a couple things. One, it's that people who love God sin. That people who, who actually love God and have devoted their whole lives to him still mess up. They still make mistakes. They still do things that are wrong. Because the reality is that's true, and we're going to look at a story today uh, that is probably one of the best examples in the Bible of someone who really loves God doing something that's really, really messed up. And so that's kind of the first thing, is that people who love God sin. The second thing is that sin's got to be dealt with. A lot of times as Christians, we kind of think in, this, in terms of sin being almost theoretical. Like it's not, it's sort of not real. Like we know we're wicked, we know we're bad. But we don't deal with our sin actually individually. We kind of just say like, oh, well, there's kind of two reactions. There's one, it's like, oh, yeah, I am a sinner, but I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. So you kind of just sweep it under the rug. You're like, it's not a big deal. It's fine. I'm going to keep on doing my thing. The other side is uh, perhaps when you sin, you just like lose your mind. You just are, uh, Martin Luther did this where he would just like whip his back. He, he just knew he was sinful and he would just abuse himself. I don't think any of you guys like take it to that extreme. But for some of us, we just kind of shut down when we sin. We just like, oh, it's so wrong what we did. It's so terrible. And I I can never be forgiven of this. I can never get past this. This sin is going to take over me forever. It's kind of these two ideas of sin. And and so the reality is, is, as people who love God, we have to deal with our sin. We have to deal with the sins that we commit. The other thing that this question assumes uh, is that you're, that you love God. But some of you in this room, honestly, you don't love God. And that's, that's fine. It's not, I don't want you to just stop listening to what I'm going to say. Because I think that a lot, in a lot of ways, 
uh, this is going to be a really cool story for you because we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about David. We're going to talk about David who who wrote this psalm. And if you don't know much about David, there's probably two stories that you know: David and Goliath, and David and Bathsheba. David and Goliath, this great story of this kid who probably like my size, just this little guy, uh, this giant who's nine foot ten, just this big old guy saying, your God sucks, kill me. And all the Israelites are like, no, we can't, you're huge, and that's terrifying. So David says, I'll do it, and he just gets this stone and like, you know, domes him in the head, runs up, cuts his head off, is like, hey, check it out, Philistines, and they go kill all the Philistines. Like this awesome story of triumph, like, oh, you know, you've heard the term David and Goliath, of, like, they use it a lot in like football or sports like that, uh, where this, you know, the underdog won, this great story. We all love underdog stories. So that's this great story about David's great faith, and then there's the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but basically, the idea here, uh, if you don't know what happened with David and Bathsheba, basically, he was looking over his kingdom, saw a woman he wanted, uh, got her, got intimate with her. Turns out she was another guy's wife. Turns out he was friends with that guy, so he actually brings him back, tries to frame the whole thing on Uriah getting her pregnant. That doesn't happen, so he ends up killing the guy. It's just this terrible story where, like, honestly, I mean, if you knew someone like that, if you really knew someone that was like, oh, you got intimate with another guy's wife, got her pregnant, and then killed her husband, you're like, that's, that's awful. That, that's, like, I don't want to talk to you ever again, because that's, that's like the most wicked thing. I can't even wrap my mind around how terrible of a thing that is. And yet this man, this guy named David, uh, the Bible says is a man after God's heart. This is a guy that, that delighted in the law of the Lord. And you're like, no, you don't. Like, you're not after God's heart. You don't delight in the law of the Lord. You're the, you're the most wicked guy. And so I say all of that to say, uh, if you're in here and you don't love God, probably the reason that you don't love God is because Christians are like that. Because Christians are like, oh, we're so much better than you, we're so holy, we're so great. And you're like, no, you do stuff that's like way worse than anybody else. You do stuff that's so wicked and so terrible. And so that's kind of what we want to talk about today is how do Christians deal with their sin? Because it turns out Christians aren't dealing with their sin the right way. More often than not, I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to generalize so much to say that no Christians do. But so often Christians sin and they don't respond to it and they don't do anything about it and they just continue to move on. Uh, and so that's what I want to talk about today is, is how do we deal with our sin? How do we get past it? How, what do we do? Because we know that our sin is wicked. We know that we are not great. We know that God is completely righteous and completely holy. And so where, how do we kind of bridge that? Uh, so we're going to go ahead and start um, in verses 1 through 6. He basically starts, uh, and David is, if you don't know anything about David, David was a shepherd. So basically, for the first, like, 20 years of his life, before he was king and before he was fighting in armies and all that, um, he basically had two things. He had his Bible, and he had sheep. Um, and that's what he did every single day. So the way he thinks about God often, in a lot of the writings he has, is he talks about the law of God, which is the, the, what he had. His Bible is the first five books of the Bible. Um, and he talks about nature. That's kind of his idea of God. He says, God wrote this, and God created all of this. And so that's what he kind of does in this. You, you see it, uh, a perfect example of that. He goes on, he says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. He goes on this whole spiel talking about how, you know, we look outside and we see the clouds and the stars and we see trees and we see all of this like incredible, glorious, 
awesome creation. And he's saying this is all, this manifests the glory of God. We look outside and we see, man, God is so big. God is so glorious. And he created all of this. I keep pointing outside, but you can't see anything. Um, so we have all of this huge creation that just, it's so big, it's so awesome that we look at it and we're like, man, some people don't think this, but a lot of people are like, man, God has to be real because, you know, look at this, look at the sunset, look at the clouds, you know, my God is an artist. Um, I don't say that, that's, I read that on Instagram one time, I thought it was super lame. Um, but in fact, it's, so, it's such a big deal that uh, Paul actually quotes this section in Romans, and he's talking about the, the glory of God in the heavens. And he's saying it's, it's so glorious, it's so big and huge that people actually, uh, instead of looking at the creation and saying, man, there's a creator that created all this, sometimes they're just like, oh, let's just worship the clouds, let's just worship the sun. That's how big it is. Some people can't even get past it. Some people can't even say, like, there's something else to this. They're just like, this is so cool, this is the coolest stuff, let's go climb a mountain. And so... You, you have this, this thing where he begins talking about it, but what he says is he says the sun is basically the pinnacle of all of that glory. Because without the sun, you couldn't see any of it. That's the reality. You look at the sun, well, you can't look at the sun, but you look at everything, and you can only see it because of the sun. And so he's going to go on to kind of use that as a comparison. The Psalms are poetic, and so he does poet poetry. He's a poet. He does that kind of stuff. So he's going to compare this to the sun. The sun is what he's talking about. It's the pinnacle of God's glory. Everything that God has done is culminated in the sun because by the sun we can see everything. It's not going to be like a pun where it's like the sun, like Jesus, uh, because this is written in a different language, so it's not the same word. Um, He goes on in in verse 7. Verse 7 through 11, he's going to talk about the law. He says things like, he says the law is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's uh, enlightening, it's pure, I already said pure, I think, it's clean, it's true, it's righteous, uh, it's more desirable than gold, and it's sweeter than any honey. What he's talking about, what what he has is he has the first five books of the Old Testament, which is like that section right there. Um, And if you've ever read those books... You're like, they, what you just described is not those five books. Um, Chances are, like, I love the Old Testament, so I guess I'm kind of, I'm a little different. But for most people, they're like, Genesis is kind of cool, but it's really weird. Exodus is good for a little bit, but then it gets awful. It's just like a bunch of measurements after that. And then Numbers has two good chapters and Leviticus and, like, have you read Leviticus 15? It's, you probably haven't. That's a, that's like a Bible college joke. Leviticus 15 is the grossest chapter in the entire Bible. It's, don't turn and read it because I'll look at you and you'll react weird and I'll know that you aren't paying attention to me. Uh, but in your own time, go read Leviticus 15. It's like weird. We would, we used to highlight people's Bibles and like, so if you ever opened it, you would see that and you're like, that's, you're weird. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. So we're talking about the law of God, and he's saying it's so pure, it's so righteous, it's, it's worth much, much fine gold. And we kind of hit a disconnect here because we don't think about the law. We don't really care about the law. The law is, is so not a part of our lives uh, because a lot of us are, have this mentality, and it's not entirely wrong, but it's a little dangerous that because we believe in Jesus, the law doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and that's not entirely true. Uh, so we talk about the law, it's, it's this, like the Ten Commandments. You are all at least moderately familiar with the Ten Commandments. It says things like, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, you know, yada, yada, yada. Ten, just ten rules. Uh, there's a lot more than that. There's like 
who is a few hundred. Um, but David is so in, like you just read this and you're like, he, he's the Lord is perfect. Uh, the, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And you're saying, that's weird because that sounds like someone who keeps the law. That sounds like someone who's a good guy, but we, I mean, David has, this story of David and Bathsheba is like mind-blowingly wicked. And so it's, it's, it's weird because this guy is so stoked on the law. And yet he's such, a, such an awful guy. He commits a lot of these terrible things that he does in his life. And so we have to talk about, I kind of want to give you a little understanding of the law because I feel like we, it's, it's hard to move on past that without knowing kind of what the law is about. So the law is not necessarily a, a list of things to do and you have to do all of them. I mean, it is that, but it, that's not the point of it. So it's not that do everything and then you'll get to heaven because the reality is that we've already messed it up. We've already, I mean, even in the Ten Commandments, we've already done something and we're like, whoops, that's not how you do that. And so we're already haven't kept the law. And in fact, David, multiple times, even before his sin with Bathsheba, has done things that, that were wrong, that were against the law. And yet he's still super excited about it. And the reality is, uh, in First Timothy 1, in First Timothy 1, verse 9, uh, he says that the law is not for the righteous, but it's for the unrighteous. And then he goes on to, to talk about a bunch of sins that people are committing. And the idea there is that the law's purpose is not so that you can keep it. The law's purpose is so that you can realize how terrible you are. So we don't have the law so that you can keep all of it, and then if you keep all of it and you're a good person and you do everything that you can, you can get to heaven. But it's that you realize you don't have a shot of getting to heaven. That you realize, man, I, have, I didn't do that. I broke that one. I'm wicked in this way. And so you begin to see, I am so unrighteous. And in fact, the law's purpose is not even really about us. The law's purpose is to look at how good God is. So you see all these things like, uh, like um, honor your father and mother. You know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, care for widows, care for orphans, all these things that we like, those are so good, and yet we can't keep those things. We are incapable of really following all of that, and so it's this, that's sort of the idea of the law, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it uh, in a bit, but it's this idea that's so much beyond just a list of rules. It's this idea that that is the character of God, and like I said, we talked about the sun being the pinnacle of God's glory and creation. The law is the pinnacle of, of God in the terms of our relationship with him because when we look, at the, we look at God, we look at his character, none of it is revealed unless we have the law. We can never understand how good God is unless we had the law to realize how bad we are. We would never understand our need for God because of our own depravity if it weren't for the fact that we were looking at this and we're like, man, I haven't kept any of this. And so that's this thing that David's doing is he's saying, just as the sun gives light to all of God's creation, the law gives light to how wicked we are, to how terrible we are, and how much we need God. And so that's, that's what's going on here. Um, in fact, it's funny when we talk about the law, because a lot of times in our mentality, we think of God in these terms of like Old Testament, he was really angry and mean and had a bunch of rules. And then, you know, he like 
went to an AA meeting, and now all of a sudden in the New Testament, he's super kind and loving and gracious, and hey, you know, come hang out with me. And it's actually kind of a misnomer, because if you look at the Old Testament, it's just rules. Not entirely, but the law, at least. It's rules. It's saying, hey, do these things. And that's it. I mean, that's, that's all it is. And then Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, and he says, oh, don't murder? Guess what that means? That means you can't even hate anybody. Oh, don't commit adultery? If you even thought it, it's already considered as adultery. And so he actually takes the law and makes it ten times harder. So this idea that, like, oh, Old Testament God was so strict, and New Testament, that's not true. The New Testament, you know, Jesus is actually gives light to the law in a way that's much more radical because the idea is the Pharisees at the time were trying to keep the law really well. They were doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, and, and the purpose of Jesus was he was saying, you think you're keeping the law, but you're not even close. The law is just this idea, this thing that kind of reveals the, or definitely reveals the, the righteousness of God by showing and revealing our wickedness. But the law isn't even ex- as extreme as Jesus was. He says, you are even more wicked than you thought you were. You know, you thought, well, I've not kept all the commandments, but I haven't committed adultery. It's like, well, if you've even thought about it, you have already. And it becomes so much more strict. And the whole idea is because we are unrighteous. And we like to pretend sometimes in our minds that we're good people. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, like, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. And the reality is no. The reality is we're not. And it doesn't take long to find a rule in here that we've broken to realize that, no, we are not good people. So what he's going to go on to uh, in verse 12, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Um, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. So he says, he says two things. This is kind of his, his prayer for forgiveness and, and the sin that he's committed. He says, um, forgive me of, of those hidden thoughts, of those hidden things, of those, those sins that I committed that I didn't know about. And kind of the idea there, it's that, it's like speeding, where you don't necessarily mean to speed, but then you look down and you're like, whoa, I'm going 10 over. I need to slow down. It's kind of that idea where it's like, there are things that we do when we don't realize we're doing them, and then later we're like, oh, yikes, that was wrong. That was not good. Or sometimes you, in the heat of the moment, you say something you shouldn't say, or it's just things like that, where it's not necessarily like you meant to do it, but you did it, and it's still wrong. And he says, forgive me of those. Forgive me of, of my hidden thoughts of my hidden faults of all these things that are that are hidden from me Uh, and then he goes on to say also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins that word presumptuous just means that they're presumed Uh, all that means is that he knew they were wrong and he still did them so it's like i know i shouldn't do this but i don't care i know i should do this but i'm gonna do it anyway because i feel like doing it because I know better because this is my decision and I'm going to do it and I don't care what the consequences are. I'm just going to do this thing. It's a very in-the-moment passionate. And sort of in our lives, it's, it's more of, it's kind of two different things. It's an I don't care. It's like I don't care about what the law says. I don't care about what God says. I don't care about anything. I'm going to do what I want to do. Or it's like it's not a big deal. 
if I do this thing, no one's going to know about it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. And those are the two things. And so he says, keep me back from those. Keep me back from those hidden faults. Uh, He says, then I will be blameless and acquitted of great transgression. And so to go back to the question, how do people that love God deal with their sin? How do people that love God deal with their sin? Because what David does here, uh, he asks for forgiveness, but, but there's so much more to what this is. Let's talk about uh, David and Bathsheba for a moment. Think about this story. Think in terms of, of, of this character of David. So to, to really give you the full story, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with it. I, I know that you probably know that he and Bathsheba, Bathsheba got intimate. But, but the reality of the story really gives us like this idea of, of what sin is like in our lives. So he's looking over his kingdom and he sees this woman. And he says, this woman is beautiful and I, I want to know her. Biblical now. It has a different meaning. Um, and so he sends his, his guards and they go find her and they bring her back. And, you know, they get in the passion of the moment. They get intimate. Um, and he realizes this guy or this woman's husband is one of my generals, is one of my very close generals. His name is Uriah, and him and David were pretty close. And so all of a sudden he's like, man, this is, this is a bad situation. And then, but he tries to hide it, and then turns out Bathsheba got pregnant. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. And so what does he try to do? He, he, he tries to bring Uriah back, and so that he can, you know, he would go see his wife, and then they could, you know, maybe think that the kid was his. But Uriah is so faithful and loyal. He says, no, as long as my brothers and the soldiers out there can't come back to their homes, I'm not going to sleep in my own bed. I'm not going to visit my wife. I'm going to sleep here on the streets as long as they're sleeping in tents. And so David's looking, and he's like, I'm, I'm trying to hide this sin. I'm trying to get past this. But this guy is so faithful and loyal, and he's such a good guy, and he's just like one of the best generals I have, just both in his ability to conquer and in just his passion for being a good guy. And so what does he do? He writes this note to another general that says, take Uriah, put him in the front line, go to war. When the war is getting heavy, pull back, retreat, make sure he dies. And then he hands this letter to Uriah. It says, Uriah, deliver this to your general. He hands the man his own death note. Then he goes out. The war is going on. Uriah is killed. The news comes back. Bathsheba hears, my husband is dead. She gives birth. This child dies. And all of a sudden, this story becomes very real. It's not just a story about David and Bathsheba doing something wrong. It's a story where I look at what I've done, and I see I killed, I murdered one of my friends, one of my generals, one of the guys that was so loyal to me. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the reaction or the, the consequences of my own sin, looking at this child who's no longer breathing that I created, and yet now is dead because of my own wickedness. See, when we talk about the fall of man, we talk about in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, sometimes we use the term the fall of man and it makes it sound a little more innocent than it really is. The reality is this is the huge, just the, the disgustingness of what happens. It's weird because it's so almost poetic that they just eat an apple and you're like, that doesn't seem like that's that big of a deal. But they're, what they're doing is they're choosing a different lifestyle than the lifestyle that God has, has told them to. They're saying, we don't care, God, what you have to say. We're going to do our own thing. And in fact, what's going to happen because of it is that millions and millions of people are going to go to hell, not because of that, but in light of that. 
that sin is now a realistic problem. And David is looking at that firsthand. He's saying, man, my sin is so wicked that I'm looking at, my friend is dead, my child is dead, this woman no longer has a husband, now I have to take care of her. It's just this, just the disgustingness of it. You know, when we talk about the Bible, sometimes it's easy to, to separate ourselves from it. But it's just like, if you knew someone that did that, you would never want to talk to that person ever again. And yet this guy is a, is a great hero in the faith. This guy is a guy who was, you know, after the heart of the Lord, who loved the law. You're like, you don't love the law. You don't care about the law. You do whatever you want to do. So how do Christians deal with their sin? Why is it that we're looking at this section written by David, who's such a wicked guy, who does, he's not wicked entirely, but he does a lot of terrible things. The reality says, clean me from my hidden faults. Clean me from those things hidden to me. There's a handful of pretty big mistakes that he made that he didn't know he was making when he did them. Clean me of those hidden faults. And, and so there's this idea that David... I don't know how to explain this in a super easy way in a couple minutes. There's a handful of promises in the Old Testament. Um, you see a promise to Abraham. You see a promise to David. You see a promise uh, to Adam and Eve. Basically saying, there's coming a day when someone is going to fix this problem. There's coming a day when someone is going to fix sin. And so not a, a lot of people kind of, there's a handful of people in the Old Testament that really understood that that really understood my sin is bad, but there's coming a time when someone will take care of it. That person is going to be the son of God. That person is going to pay the penalty of sin. That's why they were sacrificing in the Old Testament because they were looking forward to this time. And, and David knew it greatly because the promise was through David's line, that uh, through kind of his tribe that Jesus would come. They didn't know the name of Jesus, but they knew someone would come. And so he says, clean me of my hidden faults. What he knows is that there's someone that's coming that is going to pay that penalty for sin. And, and so when we, when we look at our sin and we say, clean me of my hidden faults, the idea is that through the death of Christ, we know that our faults have been cleaned. That Christ came and he lived uh, this perfect life, keeping all of these commandments. He would go and suffer this incredible suffering that we can't even imagine. He would die one of the most brutal deaths known to man uh, and that he would resurrect three days later. And so that death of Christ, we know that the, that the wrath of God against sin, that God hates sin, that he punished Christ for all sin in that moment. And so when we say, clean me of my hidden faults, we know that all of the faults we do, whether they're hidden or whether we do them on purpose, we know that they're forgiven through the death of Christ. But then he goes on, he says, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Now, what's, what's cool here is he doesn't necessarily ask for forgiveness of presumptuous sins. Um, the idea is that through the death of Christ, we understand that we're forgiven of all sin, no matter how heinous, no matter how terrible, no matter how wicked. But he goes beyond just asking for forgiveness of these. He says, keep me from these. Keep me back from these. You know, this idea of, I don't want to do these things. Maybe in the moment, I, I thought it was a good idea, or I, really want, I was really passionate, but removed from it, man, I don't want that. I want you, God. I don't want that sin. I don't want to be living that sort of lifestyle and this is an interesting one. Actually, in Psalm 16, you kind of see this too when he says, um, basically, you won't keep my body in the ground. He's talking about resurrection. The idea that 
and this was even, David had an understanding of this, and very few people, I think, really did, that this Messiah that would come, this person that would come and save us, not only was going to suffer God's wrath, but was going to come back to life. Signifying not only that has he paid the penalty for sin, but he's overcome sin. He has overcome death. And so when we say, keep us back from presumptuous sins, keep us back from those sins that we purposefully commit. We look to the resurrection of Christ. To, to, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, that through that we now have dominion over death, that death cannot hold us back, that the sin that we can't seem to get past has no power over us. We are no longer held down. We are no longer chained, enslaved to this sin. We are free from this sin because Jesus Christ has overcome death. And so through that power of of resurrection, we can overcome our sins. In fact, a lot of Christians, uh, they live this life where they are forgiven, but they're not victorious. They live where they understand that we're forgiven of sin because of the death of Christ. We are, are clean. But they forget what happened three days later when Jesus walked out of the tomb and said, Satan has no power over us. Death has no power over us. Sin has no power. We can overcome through the resurrection of Christ. That's a victorious lifestyle. When sin does not keep us from succeeding, keep us from from doing big things in the name of God. And it's this idea that Christ came, that the, the whole purpose of the law, Christ came to fulfill. Christ kept every single one. Jesus did every single thing right. So that he looks at this and he doesn't see how unrighteous he is. He sees how righteous he is. He sees how, how perfect he is. And we look at this and we see, you know, you see things like uh, care for widows and orphans. Why does the law say to care for widows and orphans? Because it gives us the characteristics of God, that God is a father to the fatherless, that he is the, the, the great groomsman of the bride of the church. These are the ideas of who God is. And so these things that are so righteous, Christ comes and he fulfills And this is the thing that brought David to his knees. When David sinned, how did he deal with it? He fell on his knees and said, forgive me of my faults. Keep me back from these things. We're talking about David and Bathsheba. He's saying, I don't want to do these things. These things are not what I desire to do because I love God. I love who he is. I love the fact that he's created everything. I love the life that he's given me. I love who he is. I love that I am forgiven, that I will spend eternity in heaven with him. I don't want these sins. I don't want to be enslaved to my own passions. I don't want to to continue to do these terrible, terrible things. And it would drive him to his knees saying, Lord, forgive me of these things. See, the way David responds to his sin is actually very, almost encouraging. What we do often, we do very frequently, is, is we put up this false sense of spirituality right, where we, like, try to act like we really have it all together. We try to act like we're really holy, uh, especially around each other. We're like, oh, yeah, I don't deal with that. Or, like, you know, if you're the guy that, like, two words into the first worship song, you have your hand up, and you're just, like, praising the Lord. You know what I mean? Sometimes, and I'm not saying if you do that, that's wrong, but I'm saying sometimes we actually frequently, we put on this false sense of spirituality. We try to act holier than we really are. We try to act like we have our lives more together than we really do. And the truthfulness is, we don't have it together. The truthfulness is, this week I knew I was going to teach, and I still sinned this week. I mean, that's the reality of, I mean, we're still humans. 
And, and so because we have this sort of sense of trying to always act like we're better than we do, um, trying to act like we have this false sense of holiness, well, few of us actually ever achieve holiness because we're not honest with ourselves. Because we're so busy trying to put on this show of being a good guy and of, you know, doing everything right, that we never actually can achieve holiness because we're never honest with each other. Because we don't turn to the law. We don't turn to, to this and look at this and say, I'm so wicked here. I'm so unrighteous here. I'm so awful here. And so the, the law being like the sun revealing everything, the law reveals our faults. It reveals where we have come short. It reveals where we're not where we should be. And so you look at the way David deals with this sin. The big problem a lot of people have with the church is what? The church is full of hypocrites. I mean, that's, I mean I've had so many conversations talking to people about, um, you know, the time that I was in Bible college and the fact that I'm a Christian. And people are like, some Christians are okay, but most just are hypocrites. And the reality is, yes, most Christians are hypocrites. But we look at this life of David, who has done something much more wicked than probably anyone in this room has or will ever commit. And yet David's not a hypocrite. Why? Because David is honest. He's saying, no, you're right. I am wicked. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm better than I am. I'm not trying to pretend like a really righteous guy. I am wicked. I am terrible. I've done things more horrible than most people will ever do in their lives. And that's why I need Jesus. That's why I need to be forgiven of these things. That's why I need the death and the resurrection of Christ because I don't have it together. I don't have it all together. I am terrible. I am wicked. I am unrighteous. We said the law is not for the righteous, but it's for the unrighteous. That's why David liked it so much, because he was very unrighteous. And he looked at it, and he was like, I don't keep that. I fall short. I am not capable of doing this. And that's why God is so glorious. Because even though he has kept all of it, even though he has every right to banish us to hell, to just never deal with us ever again, to make our lives terrible and awful and miserable, yet he says, no, I'm going to send my son to save you from that. My son, who's not going to do anything wicked, who's not going to do anything wrong, is going to suffer the death of a murderer, of someone who kills someone else. He's going to be hung up on a cross. He's going to be tortured. He's going to, for six hours, go through a pain that we will never even understand, all for us. That he would do in six hours, that he would pay for something that would take us an eternity to pay for. That's why David loved the law. That's why we look at David and we say, man, what a great man of faith because he knew where he stood before God. He knew he was wicked. He knew he was unrighteous. And yet he fell on his knees and said, God, forgive me through the blood of Christ. And so how do we deal with our sin? The reality is, one, we talk about repentance. The Bible talks about repentance all of the time. Uh, there's tons and tons of verses about it. And in the average Christian's life, there's actually very little repentance, unfortunately. Repentance would be not just this idea of like theoretically repenting, where it's like, God, I'm wicked, save me, or forgive me, or whatever. But it's this idea of today I did this and this was wrong. Or I said this and I shouldn't have said this. Lord, forgive me of this specific thing. And in fact, repenting should be something we do every day because we make mistakes every day. 
to say, God, forgive me of this. I can't believe I did this. Lord, keep me back from this. Don't let me do this again. Lord, through your resurrection, let me have power over my sin. So it's, it's kind of this idea of how do we deal with our sin? We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with God. We have to, to not pretend like we're more holy or righteous than we really are, but to really say, God, I am wicked, and these are the things that I've done. Forgive me of these things. We've got to be honest with ourselves. And, and what being honest with ourselves means is that we, we get in the law. We read the Bible. And I'm not talking about just the, the first five books of the Bible. I'm talking about the Bible in its entirety. To get to know God. The better we get to know God, the better we will realize where we fall short. And so to be honest with ourselves, because honestly, there are hidden faults. There are things that we do that we don't even know about. We don't even know are wrong because we don't know God well enough to realize, man, I shouldn't be doing this. So to be honest with ourselves, to be in the Bible, and, and then to be honest with each other. The, the Bible says that a, a cord made of three strands is not easily broken. What it's saying is it's talking about people uh, being honest with each other, praying with each other, uh, confessing their sins to each other, being accountable with each other. That if we keep walking around and, and trying to act like we're all holy and we have it all together, then we'll never get it all together. But if we're honest with each other and we're saying, I am bad here, help keep me accountable here, help me get better in this area, help me overcome these things, we have to be honest with each other. And so when we talk about how do Christians deal with their sin, how do people who love God deal with their sin, the reality is they deal with it. The reality is they don't brush it under the rug. They're honest with God. They're honest with themselves. They're honest with each other. And just think about that. I mean, think of if we were really out there talking to people who weren't Christians, who were like, we don't like Christians because they're all hypocrites. And we're like, yeah, we are wicked. We are terrible. We don't have it together. We're worse or bad, as bad as you, if not worse. And that's why we need Jesus. That, that we don't believe in Christianity because we're righteous. We believe in Christianity because we are unrighteous. You know, Christ did not come to make bad people good people. He came to make dead people alive. And that's how we deal with our sin. That's how we deal with the law. We realize that this is not for me to try my hardest to keep. This is for me to realize my own wickedness and to ask God to change me. And to be honest with God, ask him for help. Ask him for that resurrection power to be victorious over sin and death. Let's pray.